are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. All right, Paula. Well, this is exciting. So we're going to start a three to four part series on opiate use disorders. And we could probably talk forever on this, right? Oh, yeah. Super (laughs) common. (laughs) Tell me what, what is the most common screening tool that you use in your practice for opiate use disorder? Well, I think that's kind of a trick question. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) We do have screening tools that we can use, and they're recommended by SAMHSA uh, to use a certain tool. There are some tools that are validated. I mean, really, if you look for tools for any disorder, there are going to be many tools, right? But really, you want to rely on a history and physical. I think that should be your primary method of obtaining a diagnosis of opioid use disorder. However, for patients on opioids, screening tools that have good validation would be the ASSIST, uh, you know, the NIDA modified ASSIST, I guess, as it's more commonly known. And that's the question we're all familiar with that says, how many times in the past year have you dot, dot, dot. For opioids, it would be used uh, opioid medication for a non-medical use. The opioid risk tool or the ORT is another tool that we can use. It's a sensitive and shorter test, but that only predicts future opioid abuse risk, Darlene. It doesn't really give us an idea if people are actually meeting DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder right now. Um, Yes. And and I mean, it it does give you a little broader for multiple substances, correct? In that, in that tool. It does. It does. Even though it's called the opioid risk tool. And then the other one uh, that I like, and I think you use this pervasively in your practice, is the SOAP-R, the revised SOAP screening tool, S-O-A-P-P-R. This is a 24-item self-report test for opioid abuse and chronic pain patients. So these are patients who are being prescribed opioids for chronic pain complaint. And the screening tool gives you either a high or a low risk for abuse of the medications. And that can be really helpful. The questions themselves are pretty interesting in that screening tool. And uh, it gives you, if the, uh, if you get a low risk response from that tool, you might feel reassured that your patient is doing fairly well on their chronic opioids, as well as other objective data that you gather, such as reviewing the prescription data monitoring base and urine drug screens and collateral from family. But if you get a high risk response from that tool, you want to delve into more questions about the DSM-5. How do you go about that process? No, absolutely. I have used that tool for many years. And that's just part of our kind of intake packet. If we are going to prescribe opiates for chronic pain. And I agree, we we do exactly that is just that's part of the tool uh, of our tools. And so it's not it's not something that I use by itself by any means, but it's just something to kind of just give you a little bit more information on just the patient in general. Right, right. So and those are all um, available on the public domain. 
So the single item drug screener from, you know, NIDA, how many times in the past year have you used an illegal or prescription drug for non-medical reason? That's easy enough. Um, the ORT is accessible and you can look at that in terms of future risk. Uh, and then the SOAP R is also accessible. Uh, but really getting a history and a physical, taking a complete history, which would include medical history of a patient, mental health history, since comorbid mental illness is so common with patients with substance use disorder. Yes. And then getting a substance use history, that helps you gauge opioid use disorder severity, helps you decide what kind of treatment the patient has had in the past, was willing to do, and what level is appropriate for them. And then, of course, you want to get a social history and a family history as well, as well as what medications your patient's currently taking. Uh, this helps you make decisions for treatment as you move forward. But do you want to talk a little bit about substance use treatment history and how to take a good history? In our practices, most patients are coming in and they're self-identifying, correct? And so we just think, well, yeah, I mean, how do you identify it? They come in and they tell us. You really want to start out with very open-ended questions. And I start out and I have patients fill out some paperwork ahead of time. And that's where I kind of get out. I get the details of their information. And so I ask them about all substance use. And so I have that filled out ahead of time. And then I just kind of have them fill, you know, and then I just can ask some pertinent questions. So you want to ask about substances use, the route, the amount, the age at first use, and when last use. And that gives you an idea. Is this somebody who is, was this daily use or was this experimented and in current and remission? You know, you want to know definitely about co-occurring use. I ask about previous treatment, when and where and how long they were in treatment before. And then I definitely screen for mental health disorder. So we ask about previous diagnoses. Have you been, what have you been told that you have? What medications have you taken in the past? That also clues me in about sometimes they're not quite sure what they've been diagnosed with or they disagree with what they've been diagnosed with. So they're not going to dis readily disclose that to you. So knowing what medications that they've been on in the past kind of helps you. I ask about previous hospitalizations, suicide attempts. I ask about, it's good to screen a little bit for trauma. And so I just ask about previous physical abuse, sexual abuse, if they, and, and that sometimes that's easier to ask first in written format. Patients sometimes will disclose it there, but they won't tell you in person. They're not ready to talk about that yet. And then I also will just ask on there if there's any about legal, is this person in currently in court order treatment? You know, is there any legal issues currently? So just being aware of that, because does, is that going to have any constraints in their treatment? Those are just some of the current things that I will just ask in their initial screening. And then during their visit, then I, I start out my very first question to them is just tell me your story. And some of them are are readily available and some just kind of look at me like what? And so sometimes I just have to prompt them with a few questions. So tell me how this started. It looks like you were 12 years old when you first started using what happened then. I'm always fascinated by everyone's story. I mean, everyone has a story that they want to share with you. And it really, really helps me getting to know that person 
when when they can share you how they tell you their story and, and and just watching it evolve. But if you listen to them and you really listen to that detail of story, you are checking off all their boxes of the DSM-5 at the same time because you're seeing how it's affected their life. You're looking at it when it became daily use. You're hearing about, does this be causing symptoms of withdrawal. They're having symptoms of withdrawal. That's why they couldn't stop using. They escalated on their doses. They started be, you know, engaging in risky behavior to obtain their use. They stopped, you know, they lost jobs because of their use. They're alienated from family. You know, you hear all of this in their narrative as they're going through that. And this, you know, and I and I set aside time for this initial visit, but a lot of people think, well, this will take too much time. And relatively, most patients, this can be done. Probably most of you just let them talk 10, 10, 12 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. They have been able to give me all of that information. And I have learned so much from that. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I think that's an excellent approach to getting the DSM-5 criteria. People will tell you as a natural history of their disease state, how they started taking more over more opioids, you know, over a longer period of time than they intended to, and they tried to cut down and were unable to, and uh, craving um, and a strong desire plays a frequent theme, right? And uh, obviously, you know, by the time you're done, you've got either your two to three symptoms from the 11 criteria in the DSM-5, you're four to five for moderate or you're six or more. And it's pretty easy to go back and just say, oh, yep, this person had continued use in spite of having persistent physical or psychological problems, etc. Recurrent use in physically hazardous situations, just like you were saying. And I have students or residents who often ask me, well, how do you even approach someone's drug use history? I love that you just say, tell me your story. I think that's a great place to start. Just start at the very beginning. Tell me what you very first started using. How old were you? What were the circumstances? And also uh, another approach is to start right now in the present. You know, what brings you here today? What's going yeah. on right now? And people will start with, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to quit. I can't do this anymore. I've, I want to get my kids back. Etc. Etc. And then you can go back in time and say, "Well, this is what's going on now. How did this all start for you?" And you get this history of time as to when they started using, how it evolved. A lot of people start using opioids from a prescribed event, from a surgery, from getting their wisdom teeth out as kids, or yes. a friend or a family member gave them a pill, or they used pills at a party. Some people leap straight to heroin and they just start using heroin after being introduced to other drugs such as marijuana or methamphetamines. So everyone has a different story, but it's amazing how many themes emerge. And you can gather that, like you said, in a brief history uh, and then gain the other important and pertinent information like their psychiatric history, their legal history, their social history, um, as well as what their goals are and why, why they're presenting to you and what it is that they want. And that becomes very important in terms of treatment because if you listen to what they want, you're more likely to arrive at a place where you're not disappointed and they are able to meet their own expectation. 
as opposed to assuming that everybody who comes to see us or that we encounter in the hospital or in a clinic who might have opioid use disorder wants to stop using opiates right away. Yes, I love that you bring that up. I tell patients, so we've, we've asked and we've told you that your first visit is going to be a little longer visit because we're going we're gonna to just talk. This first visit is about me learning your history, and then the rest is going to be talking about your treatment plan. Because that's exactly what it is, is we need to find out what you want. And then let me present kind of your options of what I can do to try to help you achieve your goals. But I think it's so important. And I think it was you, Paula, that taught me this years ago was I and I keep this in their chart as I ask them, what's what what are your goals? And it's not always just related to their you know, through their addiction, it's, I just say, what's, what's your life goals? What's your addiction preventing you from achieving? And what can we help you with? And I put that in there because it helps them just keep their momentum, even sometimes during those hard times. Sometimes some of them are just like, I, I want to go back to school. I want to buy a house. I want to get my kids back. And so we add that in as part of their goals too. Sometimes it's not just to cut down or stop using that's and some of them just don't want to be sick anymore, right? That's that's sometimes everyone's goals. I just don't want to be in withdrawal. In addition to that, what are your other goals? And knowing what those other goals are can also help that help you to help them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And sometimes people, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, what are your goals and, and what matters to you? Why are you here? Sometimes people are forced into treatment, depending on your setting and where you work, right? If you're a hospitalist and you admit a patient with uh, that meets criteria for sepsis and they have bacterial endocarditis, they don't necessarily present to the medical system for help quitting their injection drug use. So their goal may not be, oh, I want to stop using. However, they might be motivated because of their current hospitalization or other things that have become unmanageable in their life. I work with a population currently that's largely criminal justice involved, and a lot of them are court-ordered into treatment. Uh, And I used to work in an acute detox facility, and family members would drop people off. And, you know, the interesting thing about the population who presents non-voluntarily is they actually have the same outcomes with treatment as people who do present voluntarily in, in a positive way. People are more just as likely to get well from their addiction with the right support and the right resources as those who present of their own volition. And isn't that fascinating? Because I think even among providers, that's not the, that's not the attitude or the thought that we have, right? Because we think, well, these patients don't want to be here, and so they, they aren't going to be as successful. That's not what the data is showing, is it? Exactly. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very common, you know, patients who are drug seeking, manipulative, addicted, they can be our hardest patients. We don't understand them. We don't understand why they lie and manipulate or why they use drugs in the bathroom of their hospital room. It's perplexing to us. We don't understand why they've lost their kids and continue to use substances in spite of these terrible consequences. But this is the very definition of addiction. It's continued use in spite of negative consequences. That sums it up. Pregnant women don't use heroin because they want to use heroin while they're carrying a pregnancy. It's because their addiction is sabotaging their midbrain and they literally feel helpless to it. And I think that's one of the things that we as medical system need to be better at doing is 
putting aside our own beliefs and our own judgments, even though that can be very difficult at times because we want people to do well and be better, but realizing that people show up, we identify what matters to them, try and meet them where they are, understanding that opioid use disorder, like other kinds of addiction, substance use disorders, really are brain diseases. They affect the neuroanatomy and neurochemistry of the brain in such a way that motivation and learning are altered on a DNA level, right? Yes. Receptors are changed, they're down-regulated, up-regulated, and people's brains are literally different. We know this from functional MRI studying, excuse me, functional MRI studies, and the amazing work of Dr. George Kube and Dr. Nora Volkow that the brain is a different brain when someone is has a substance use disorder. So we're kind of, I've gone ta tangential here, but <laughs> I think it's just really important that we don't tisk tisk and just say, well, that person's not ready and there's nothing we can do. Might be true. They might not be ready to meet our standards of sobriety, but there's always something we can do. There's always an attitude of compassion and gentle friendliness that we can have in terms of offering the right evidence-based options for treatment and assessment, just like we do any other medical condition, rather than writing in their chart, don't use drugs or stop using drugs, which just doesn't make any sense. It's like telling a patient with metastatic cancer, stop having cancer, you know, in the plan. Oh, that's the plan. Stop having your cancer. Just stop it. Doesn't make any sense to do that. So to circle back to assessment for opioid use disorder, we have to think about what the patient brings to the table, why they have arrived with us as their provider. And as we assess them, get the full picture, try and look at it as we do assess other medical conditions, and then key into what really matters to them. And this is the technique of motivational interviewing, which has been shown to be very helpful with the substance using population, because then we can use that moving forward so that they then are motivated for that change behavior, as opposed to us pushing it on them and then becoming more resistant and digging in and, and, and holding on to old behaviors that are not uh, healthful for them. Absolutely. I think all of that is so important. And if you can just find that one thing, and sometimes it takes that just that time, just even if you I loved how you brought up that patient, you, you know, you have that patient admitted there in the hospital, and maybe they're there because they're so sick with an infection, they they could no longer go on. But you have that opportunity with the patient not to not to be judgmental, to not and, and not just to treat their infection, you can give them that opportunity and just find out what their goals are. And and maybe that person, if they know that you're they're going to be sick and in withdrawal, and if they know that you can actually help them alleviate their suffering, most patients are going to take that. So many patients will come asking for help if they know that you can help them. I can't believe how many patients have come to me and have told me that they would have gotten help years ago if they thought someone could have helped. True. That's absolutely true. And we see these programs that are popping up after the Yale model where uh, you provide rapid and low barrier access to buprenorphine, like from an emergency department, and people are pouring in. They're pouring in with, with tears in their eyes saying, I just, I'd never had access before. I didn't realize I could be treated for this, or I just never realized, you know, didn't have access to a provider who could treat me for this condition because the withdrawal from opioid 
um, dependence is so significant and so averse that people just continue to use long after they've they've gotten any kind of uh, positive reinforcement from it. Now it's just they're trying not to have the negative effect from their use, right? They're just not being sick. That's the whole cycle of addiction we talked about in a previous podcast with uh, the cycle of addiction and the negative affect and the withdrawal state being probably the most important part of the cycle of addiction. We used to think that binge intoxication and the using phase of addiction was the most important part that that reinforcing stage with dopamine release etc is what motivated people to continue using but we think now it's actually the negative state the state of no drug on the system that's been habituated to feel that stimulus is what motivates people to continue using and this is particularly true with opioid use. It is so miserable. And I think unless you really see patients in this state and treat them and understand they how and listen to them when they explain to you, I, I mean, that's another thing. It's not just when you're doing their withdrawal assessments and really listening to them and what their symptoms are when you're when you're doing those evaluations seeing they're so miserable it's the emotional state it's the physical state this is why they continue and and I love that you brought up the when with the increasing the emergency room access but that's also expanded into when they offer that on hospitalist services and they're giving you know the injectable buprenorphine to patients and getting them that that has just changed this for patients because it's not any of this well we we treat you for a couple of days and then you're discharged and you know good luck trying to find treatment but it is that low that low barriers to care rapid access to treatment it patients will take it we've got to it's it's all about access if we improve if we improve access it's just it's so funny how it would never be this difficult if somebody came in, you know, if they had endocarditis and diabetes or hypertension, you wouldn't blink about treating them. But for some reason, we have such difficulty getting them care and continuing that care, right? Right, right. So what does what does opioid withdrawal look like? Let's let's talk about what it actually looks like and the different kind of phases and how long it lasts. Should we do that? Yes, we could. I think that's I think that's appropriate because that's that's often had a patient who came in, you know, in my practice, we also see urgent care. And that's how I identified his opiate use disorder, because he was clearly in opiate withdrawal. And so sometimes depending on what type of practice you have, if you if you provide urgent care services, emergency room, I mean, they see you're going to see opiate withdrawal. Yeah, depending on what patients are using. So if they're using a short-acting opioid like oxycodone or hydrocodone, morphine or heroin, uh, even fentanyl's short-acting, people you know, will start having withdrawal anywhere from a few hours to 24 hours after their last use. And everyone's different too. People metabolize opioids at different rates, but they normally start having you know, lacrimation and rhinorrhea diaphoresis, chills, they feel very restless, people start feeling a lot of anxiety and dysphoria. And then as the withdrawal progresses, you begin to see a dilation of the pupils, and they get goose flesh, and they really complain of myalgias and arthralgias and abdominal pain and cramping. That normally progresses to more significant 
beyond kind of moderate to severe withdrawal, where then you have, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, both of those things can, can happen. People can have a tremor. They can become tachycardic and hypertensive. Although I have to admit, I don't often see hypertension with opioid withdrawal as much as it's said in the books. You do see some tachycardia. Yes. Mostly these are subjective symptoms, plus the objective findings of pupillary dilatation, piloerection, and extreme restlessness. You see people with their legs just kicking. And in fact, this is where the old saying comes from, I'm going to kick a habit. It comes from <laughs> kicking from heroin. Um, old people addicted to heroin would say, I'm going to kick it, or I'm going to kick this habit. And it came from their legs kicking un controllably and involuntarily when they were coming off heroin or opium. So when you see someone and they, they've got extreme restless legs, extreme restlessness, uh, that's something you could think of, but it comes as a whole syndrome of runny nose, runny eyes, yawning, sneezing, abdominal cramping, um, restless legs. And then the most significant thing of all that people will tell you is extreme anxiety and dysphoria. They just feel terrible. They feel terrible and they want it to go away very, very quickly. And that often is what brings people back around the cycle to using because they know as soon as they use an opioid, all of these symptoms are going to go away almost almost immediately. Long acting opioids like, you know, extended release oxycodone or extended release morphine, uh, methadone, um, withdrawal may take longer to emerge and it may long last longer as well. So gone untreated, people may have symptoms of opioid withdrawal for 14 to 21 days. So people can expect to feel quite ill for quite a long time. And they always say, you know, you won't die from opioid withdrawal, but you really feel like you're going to. Um, so people come in and they, they just, they look terrible. They feel terrible. They look like they've got a terrible gastroenteritis or influenza. But I have to say, you, people will say, oh, well, you don't need to be admitted for opioid withdrawal, uh, but you just, it just feels so bad. I have had or I have known of people being admitted to even the ICU for acute and critical care due to severe opioid withdrawal, mostly relating to dehydration and acid-base disturbance. So it can happen. And I've heard stories, too, from people who've been incarcerated They've had high tolerance to opioids prior to incarceration. They receive no monitoring or support while they're in jail, and they get very dehydrated from their vomiting, from their losses, basically, their GI and their skin losses, and they can end up with um, hypotension or hyponatremia, hypokalemia, etc. So even though it may not be as critical a withdrawal syndrome as, say, alcohol withdrawal, syndrome or benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, it's still significant, can be significant from a medical perspective. And it's very significant from an emotional and personal perspective from the person for the person experiencing it. Absolutely. And I think definitely keeping in mind, we have, this is not just a younger population, we have many older patients, and they have other medications that they're taking that can exacerbate some of these fluid losses. You know, they're on hypertensive medication, diuretics, uh, and some of these other meds that is going to put them at risk of sometimes these other consequences. And I think I'm seeing that more often. They're just having, you know, and you've seen it. So I think that, you know, I think that's a really good point. Right, right. So yeah, so Exactly. I, I think a lot of times too, I had this happen in my primary care practice. I had some older patients who 
they didn't meet criteria for opioid use disorder, but they were using their opioids and they stopped taking them. They developed full-blown withdrawal. They didn't know what it was. Yes. So it's a fairly common syndrome. And even people who've, uh, or not even, I should say, especially people who've had a significant surgery, they get put on high-dose prolonged opioid therapy, develop withdrawal. Well, they re- they, excuse me, they develop tolerance and withdrawal quite quickly in a matter of uh, weeks, even as little as 10, 10 to 14 days. And when they stop taking their high-dose oxycodone, for example, for a knee replacement, they do suffer a, kind of a flu-like syndrome, and that's, that's withdrawal. So you might see this beyond people with opioid use disorder. Yes, and, and I think it's really it's really difficult sometimes to trying to explain to even other physicians in that situation, but understanding the difference between that tolerance and withdrawal, but they're not meeting the DSM-5 criteria for actual addiction. So those patients, if they were taking the medications appropriately, and, and often these patients, like you said, they've only been taking medications sometimes even as short as 14 days and post-surgery, but they were taking them religiously every four hours, they I have seen that. And I had some patients referred to me because the patient's in obvious withdrawal. And, and most of those patients honestly may need just be tapered down rather than they really don't need to be put on a medication for opiate use disorder. That's something that we need to be aware of, that on an opiate, you can develop tolerance very quickly And most of our patients who are coming in for addiction, they will tell you that. And most of these that are vulnerable to addiction will tell me, you know, within either their first use or their first couple of uses, they could tell a difference. Now, some of that was that, again, you know, some of them suffering with a mood disorder, it's like a switch turned on for them. That's something different where they could tell something was happening. Again, that tolerance and that withdrawal even though that is in the criteria for opiate use disorder, if they're not meeting the other criteria, we're not going to immediately call that addiction. Yes, I totally Mm -hmm. agree with you. And, you know, I think it's really hard in a clinical setting to pull out these DSM-5 criteria for different disorders. So I simplify, well, you can simplify addiction from tolerance by three features, the three C's of addiction, if you can remember them three C's of addiction that you will not see with someone who merely has tolerance and withdrawal manifested by taking opioids for a period of time that then renders them physically tolerant and likely to withdraw will be craving. So people who crave their opioids, they they have an urge to take them. They cannot get it out of their head and they have this desire to keep taking it. That is a criteria for addiction. The second one is consequences. People have negative consequences regarding their use of opioids. Now, that's a tricky one because you could say, well, so-and-so is taking opioid therapy for their malignant pain and they're suffering you know, dry mouth and constipation. Well, we're talking more about social consequences. People yes. are getting in trouble. And, and rather than just side effects. Exactly. Yeah. It's not exactly. Thank you. It's not side effects. These are negative social personal, financial, legal, occupational consequences to use. And then the third one is compulsive use. So people who are continuing to use in spite of all of these consequences, in spite of running out early, in spite of being told otherwise, in spite of 
negative consequences. Those would be the three C's of addiction. So when you're seeing a patient and you're thinking, well, this patient's a chronic pain patient. They're on a lot of opioids. I don't know if they're addicted or not. You can go through the DSM-5 and you can also think, what is, what's do, really Do they have happen? all three of those C's? Yes. Yeah. Do they you have know? compulsive use where they cannot, they're compulsed to keep using, they're obsessed? Do they crave their, their pills? Do they count them? Do they absolutely obsess when they're going to run out and they call your office and they want early refills? And do they have consequences to use? Are they having consequences? Those are different. Then, of course, you add in all the other DSM-5 criteria that they may or may not have. But this is helpful, I think, uh, when you're thinking about addiction versus physical dependence. I love that because it really helps you to try to determine surgeons worry about this, primary care physicians worry about this. When, when has my patient crossed the threshold from appropriate use to inappropriate use? It's a great criteria to just say, hey, do they meet this? Do I need to delve deeper now? Right. And, you know, you can exactly. And, and the other thing, I guess the other C, it could be a fourth C, or it could be kind of like compulsive use as control. Are things out of control? Yeah. Um, once people are out of control with their use, that's when you cross the line. Use that's just prescribed or people who are using their opioids in a way that may render them tolerant to people who have a use disorder. And it's amazing how quickly that can happen. It might take years for people to develop consequences, negative consequences to drug use or even compulsive use. But some people are out of control with their opioids from the minute they take them. And it's amazing how many times you and I have heard this this story, right? The very time they took an opioid, like you said, it's like a switch. It's something changes and they felt we could fill in the blank that warm hug or like everything was right with the world or that their depression was lifted or that they had energy that they've never had before. That really relates to this control issue where the drug now controls something else in their neurochemistry that it's not meant to control. And a useful question that I, that I ask and, I, and in our fellowship that we often ask patients with opioid use disorder is what do opioids do for you? Most often it's not they relieve pain, it's they give me energy, I can go all night or I can go all day, or they make me feel happy, they relieve my depression, they relieve my anxiety, they make me feel numb to the trauma that I've had. What other things have you heard? I mean, do you, would you agree with me, Darlene? On that? Oh, absolutely. And I love that question. I think that is so relevant. Yeah, and that's something that I also get from patients frequently and talk to him about that. I just said, and has anyone ever told you that's not a normal response, you know, to yeah. opiates, that that's not the, you know, the normal biochemical response that when someone else, like you or myself, you know, gave us an opiate, most people fall asleep. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and so, and they look at you like, that's real, you know, <laughs> so. And this is such an interesting phenomenon, you know, like why why do one in five people respond to opioids in this way? And it puts them at risk for an opioid use disorder, you know? And I think that goes back to some of those screening tools we were talking about at the very beginning. Not so much the single question assessment, but the SOAP-R and the ORT. Those yes. questionnaires are really interesting questions that ask about family history, trauma, boredom, obsessive behaviors, etc., that some people's brains are genetically loaded for 
a response to an opioid, just like they are to alcohol. Why do some people, when they drink alcohol, they get energized and euphoric way beyond somebody else? You know, and it just hardwires some people to be more prone to opioid addiction than to other people. Yeah, that's why you can give five teenagers opioids after they get their wisdom teeth out. Four of them will go, "Yuck! That that's no fun. That's kind of you know not a good experience." And the one will go, "Well, that's just about the most fun I've had in my whole life." And that's the person who will then be more at risk to develop a use disorder. And I think this is where, you know, we need to start being more proactive when it comes to prevention is trying to figure out who the people at risk are. And that's where taking a family history is very important and monitoring people that we prescribe opioids to and just figuring out, hey, what do opioids do for you? Are you managing them okay? This is for anybody, you know, like my brother just had shoulder surgery, for example. And and, uh, how about his doctor saying to him, how are you doing with those opioids? How are they making you feel? Do you find that you're wanting to take them for things other than your pain? Have you taken more? And it's not that you're stigmatizing him or accusing him or diagnosing him with addiction in the first three days after surgery, but you're you're actually performing a risk assessment, right? So right. So he doesn't end up in four weeks saying, I used all those oxycodone. I asked for three refills, which I got. And now I'm not getting any more and I really need them because one, I'm having withdrawal and two, my brain can't stop thinking about them. That is how opioid addiction is born. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect example. So many of them, this was iatrogenic. They were prescribed yes. them for medical reasons and they were prescribed and they took them appropriately in the very beginning. And then the lives that have been lost and ruined and just ruined if, if like, you know, like you said, if we could just monitor them from the very beginning, then we could, so right. much can be prevented. Right. Yeah. And there, there's good monitoring tools. There's, you know, we all know, I think in medicine now, it's been kind of hounded into us that, you know, there are prescribing guidelines from the CDC, et cetera, for opioid therapy. And we, we need to be very careful now uh, because some people are much more prone. And we also know more now about the risks versus the benefits of opioid therapy. And of course, there's the, there is a place for opioids. I mean, there are people who have pain who really need aggressive pain management, but we do need to be careful that we don't create another disease state yes, beyond absolutely. the one that we're trying to treat. And of course, you and I sit on the side where we treat people with addiction, so we're more sensitive to the risks. But um, Absolutely. Yeah, I love this conversation. Yeah. I think it's so important when we're talking about assessment to really talk to people about opioids, where they've gotten them, how it's made them feel, what their risk is genetically, socially, and also we can use some objective findings as well, like your urine drug screen, et cetera. Maybe we can talk about that on in a our second episode when we delve more into objective findings of opioid use disorder, including physical findings, medical risks for people who who use opioids uh, before we go into then treatment options. Yeah, I think that's great. So yeah, stay tuned because next time we will talk about induction for patients on medications for opioid use disorder. We'll we'll go a little bit more into inpatient, what an inpatient detox looks like. Thank you. Until next time. 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.